you know, a lot of you are around young kids at some point, whether it be your kids or aunts and uncles or babysitting or grandparents, great-grandparents. And, and kids have a lot of different responses to instruction, right? So if, if I tell my kids, go clean up your room, I know that they're going to jump up and say, yes, Dad, we'd love to. And that's the experience of every family in here, right? When, um, when we say, you know, today's Saturday and one of your chores is the lawns and guess what you get to do today? And, and sometimes there's different responses. Sometimes there is excitement and joy. But as with most of us as human beings and our, our, our fallen nature, sometimes there's not so much joy when we have instructions. And so sometimes with kids, you might get different responses. You know, sometimes I, I get the ignore response. Like, and I'm not going to use any names this morning, <clears throat> but these are general to, I think, every family situation. Sometimes it's like, hey, I need you to go do this. Uh. No, 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 I, I told you to stop, stop doing that. Turn off the TV. Um, okay, and so, uh, you know, you have a choice as a parent. Do you ask 20 more times and reinforce that it's okay to ignore or do you do something about it? But that, that's not okay. The ignoring is not okay. Sometimes there is outright opposition. No, Dad, not going to do that. And, and I have to admit, that's when my, the hairs start to go up on the back of the neck. And I'm like, oh, please, Lord, help me not to kill them right now. And, um, and, and I'm like, what did you just say? <laughs> and they're like, no, no. I'm like, why not? I don't want to. Oh, and then we're going to have a, a little bit different course of discipline at that point. Um, Sometimes our kids do things just because they don't think, right? And, and all of us. And these, these are not just true of our kids. These are true of us. But so, so one of my kids, they're supposed to put away a, a game control after they play a game. And, and sometimes they forget. And I know it's not an act of rebellion. It's not an act of defiance. And so in that case, I just hide it in increasingly more difficult places to find in the house. And, and that is solving the problem. It, you know, if it's, if it's rebellion, you, you handle it one way as a parent, right? If it's, if it's forgetfulness, it still needs to be handled. But you might use a different tact because our goal is instruction and our goal is training. Now, I, I say all that. We're not going to get into parenting this morning. But so many times, I think we as human beings, as Christians, as believers, we can have a variety of responses to God's reign in our lives to God's instruction to us, to, to when God says, I want to be Lord of your life, I want to be king of your life, we can have different responses, right? We can say yes, and we can follow him wholeheartedly. But so often, we're prone to wander, right? And, and we, can, we can struggle, and sometimes we ignore. Sometimes we just outright say no. I don't want to. It's not, not what I'm in. And what are you going to do about it? And, and we might, oh, you can't say that to God. But we do in our actions. This morning, as we come to really a very familiar story, a familiar text, I want us to think through it in, in, in regards to how do we respond to the, king's, to the king showing up in our lives? How do we respond to Jesus in our lives? And do, can people even tell that the king is present, that he is here, that he has changed us? We're going to be going through the, the triumphal entry today. And, and no, it's, okay. it's okay. I know it's not the week before Easter. But we can do Palm Sunday and, and go through it today. And so we're going to just continue going through Luke. And we're in Luke chapter 19. If you want to turn there with me, Luke chapter 19, 28 through 44 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hardcover black one under one of the seats right around you. 
Don't want that to fall off. <laughs> and we'd love for you to pull that out and follow along with us. If you don't own a Bible, please take that with you as our gift to you so you have God's Word and, and read it. Luke's a great place to start because you'll get to, he- to read about the life of Christ and who Jesus was and what he claimed to be. So we're in Luke chapter 19, 28 through 44. My title this morning is Cheers and Tears. Or you could say cheers, jeers, and tears. And we'll get to that as we look through some of the different responses. But we're we're now coming in Luke, and we're in the third section of Luke, the victory of the king. And now this entire section of Luke is going to take place in Jerusalem. And we've been approaching Jerusalem the last couple weeks. Today we get to Jerusalem, and we see what happens as Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And then next week when we actually enter and see what Jesus did. But... The question, like I said today, out of this familiar story is how did they respond to the king and what can we learn about how we respond to the king? First point as we go through the first section is the king is in control and divinely directing events leading to the cross. It's a mouthful. Let me repeat it. The king is in control. King Jesus is in control and he's divinely directing events leading to the cross. Let's jump in and and see what we see from the, the word. Verse 28, and when he, being Jesus, had said these things, and he had just talked about, hey, you think I'm going to come in and and destroy Rome and take over and and bring peace on earth and and everything's going to be great. I'm going to be the military savior you want. And he had just finished telling him a story that says, actually, I'm going away for a time. And you need to stay busy doing my work and, and reaching the lost while I'm gone, and then I'll come back. And so he had just told them, Hey, we're going to Jerusalem, not what you think. Not the conquering king you think yet, a different kind of king. And so he said, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And I'm not going to show the same pictures that we've showed a couple times, but remember Jerusalem is about 2,000, 2,300 feet up from where he was. And so this literally was going up to Jerusalem, not just north. In fact, it was more south, southeast, southwest, but it was climbing to Jerusalem, to the capital. And when he drew near near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. And and we'll stop and get the setting here. The the mount that is called Olivet, that's the Mount of Olives. And it is just east of Jerusalem. In fact, a little higher than Jerusalem. It would have been overlooking the temple. I think I have a picture of this. Back one. This is from the top of the Mount of Olives. And this is from one of our, our trips as a church. And you're looking down, and it's a little hard to see because a lot of the stone's the same color. But you see the walls? Those walls outline the city of Jerusalem. In this case, the, the Temple Mount. And the gold in the middle, that's the Dome of the Rock, which, is, which the Muslims have set up in place of where the temple probably was. So when Jesus came over this mount, he would have seen this, but he would have seen the temple. Um, maybe a little older buildings than this, but um, it just would have been this amazing view. We know from prophecy, this is where the Messiah was going to enter Jerusalem, from the Mount of Olives. And so he comes over, and this overlooks Jerusalem, and this is the place where whenever we take groups, you just have to add an extra half hour for pictures, because it is a wow moment. We go at sunrise usually, and it's this wow moment that I think we're going to see in the text that Jesus also had, and the people had, of you come over from these little podunk towns, and, and from the wilderness in Jericho, where he was coming from, And you come to this beautiful city, the city of God, Mount Zion. 
And so he comes to, to the Mount of Olives, and it says he sent two of his disciples. Now, if you catch the two cities there, Bethphage and Bethany, Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem. It's on the backside of this mountain. So where we're standing is probably more where Bethphage might have been. We're not sure, maybe a little bit to the right there. But Bethany is right behind. This is a span of only two miles. This is not long. If you remember what happened in Bethany, he had some friends that lived there. Do you remember that? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so Bethany is where he has already raised Lazarus from the dead. They knew him there. Every time they saw Lazarus, they knew what he could do. And and so Lazarus was this walking testimony to the, the fact that Jesus was king. And he had the power to raise people from the dead. And so this is the setting. In fact, he's going to stay in Bethany throughout a lot of this Passover week and, um, and come into Jerusalem each day because it's just a short, quick walk. And he's going to, to um, head to the cross at this point. So he's near Bethany and Bethphage, Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples. Now catch that. He sent two of his disciples. The wording here, Luke is very intentional that God is directing this. Jesus is directing this. He knows what's going to happen. He is orchestrating the events that are going to lead to the cross and lead to his paying for our sins and lead to the resurrection. So in verse 30, it says, this is what Jesus said. Go into the village in front of you. And that was probably Bethphage in front of him. Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Now, that's pretty cool. Jesus is, is, is able to say, go into this town. This is what you're going to find. And so he's orchestrating events, but is, there's also a miracle here that he's making sure that these things happen. He knows there's a cult there. He, he divinely knows that he can use it. And he even prepares them for what might happen in 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. That's all he had to say. The Lord has need of it. Lots of debate about whether he was calling himself the Lord at that point. I think he was. Luke uses that phrase often to represent um, Jesus' deity, that he is master, that he is Lord of all. But Jesus knows that this this is going to work. This is going to be okay. This isn't, oh, I hope. I hope someone's there, and, and I hope they have a donkey, a colt of a donkey, and, and I hope the guy lets us take it. Oh, because if not, the whole plan falls apart. No, no, this is God Almighty through Jesus Christ, who is God, saying this is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to go down. There's no question. There's no problem. Go do this. And so the king is in control. He is divinely directing these events. 32 happens, and, and I don't know what the disciples were thinking. They had probably seen enough at this point that they're like, okay. Not sure what's going to happen, but okay. He said it, I'm going to do it. And you see a willing response there. 32, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Don't skip that phrase. That phrase says God as well. That he is faithful he will, what, what will happen is what he has directed. They found it, as he said. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. It's all we hear. I don't know if there was more discussion, but the, the, the guy said, okay, somehow. He let the colt go. And, and 
you can see Jesus' hand and, and God's hand orchestrating these events. Don't miss God's sovereignty in this story. In the whole week, in this whole section of Luke leading to the cross, don't miss God's sovereignty. Jesus was not accidentally crucified on the cross. He wasn't. It was purposeful, intentional as he sacrificed and gave his life. He is working for his glory and our good. Even though things were about to get really bad for the disciples. And they were about to get really bad for him in the next five days. But God was still orchestrating it. And, and, and I, I, I see that. And, and right from the start of the story, as I was studying, it's a familiar story to me too. And I'm like, okay, what new things can God teach me out of this story? And he does. And, and his sovereignty just screams out through Luke. And it's one of Luke's themes. But if God is sovereign over these events, miraculously leading to the cross, how much more is he still sovereign today as king? See, following the king means trusting the king. It means believing he is king and can do what he says. If we take this and and understand that Jesus is about to present himself as king, and the first part of that is that he is in control, then why, why do we get so worried in life? Why do we get so stressed out when something happens, when, when things don't appear to be turning out like we think? They didn't appear for the disciples to be turning out like they thought in the next five days. And in fact, most of them ran. But Jesus was in control. And what comfort for us that I don't have to live that life of anxiety. I don't have to stress out all the time because I'm not the one controlling it all. We, we love control and, and we love to be little control freaks and think that we, we have control over what's going to happen. That's an illusion. We don't. But our king does. Our king does. That's why we have a king. Whoever is king in our lives is the one we're expecting to control things. If I'm worried, I'm expecting to control things and I've made myself king in my life. And so right from the start, we see God's sovereignty. Then in verse 35, we get to the responses. And we'll, we'll, we'll hit several responses here and then one more in the next point. But point number two, cheers and jeers. The king's glorious approach elicits different responses. And so Jesus now is going to take this donkey and, and he's going to ride into Jerusalem on this donkey. He's going to come over the Mount of Olives that we saw there and go down that valley and up the other side into the Mount of, or into Jerusalem. And that is a signal that he is king that we're going to see in this this section. Verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, the the donkey, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode, they spread their cloaks on the road. And and this is familiar to us, but the spreading of cloaks on the road symbolizes several things. It symbolizes homage to a king and worship of a king. It symbolizes giving what I have what's precious to me, to pave the way for the king. So it's an act of submission. It's an act of coming under and saying, everything I have, all my stuff is yours. They gave everything because that's what you do for a king. In the other Gospels, we know they use branches. And and Luke here doesn't record the branches. He doesn't record the word Hosanna. Those were very Jewish things. And he's writing to actually a Gentile audience. And they would have, branches, palm branches, what's that about? Um, to the Jews, that was about royalty and something you did for royalty. 
But Luke leaves it out because that's not important to his audience. He's trying to show, though, that Jesus is setting himself up as king. He is publicly proclaiming that he is king. And the first response that we're going to see now in, in 37 is that of rejoicing. And I have a little table there that you, can, that you can fill in some of the blanks. Rejoicing. Those that follow and rejoice that Jesus is king. That's the first type of response, the first group of people. Those that follow and rejoice that Jesus is king. In verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. The king's on the donkey, coming down to Jerusalem, and they're rejoicing. And this is the the crowd that's been with him on the journey, probably, as well as people out of Bethany and Bethphage, some of the people that knew Lazarus and knew that he rose from the dead. They're just all over this. And they're proclaiming that Jesus is king, and they're coming down the mountain. There's a valley there, and I don't know if I have a picture of that. The next picture. This is actually the road from the the Mount of Olives, which is up, up top there, coming down to Jerusalem. Now, now, this is current. And every Palm Sunday, they have a group or they have a whole crowd of people. But these were narrow roads. And so it might have looked something like this. It might have been packed in like this. And you went down the valley and up the other side into the gates of Jerusalem. Now, don't think this was a long journey. We walked it in maybe 10, 15 minutes. It just, it, it, it's right there. But it signified that he was king coming in. And so we see the disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works they had seen. Now we might say, okay, so, so why so much rejoicing? That was one of the questions I had. How did they know that this was more than just, hey, Jesus was able to get up on a donkey. Good job. No, this was more because of what it represented. If you have your Bibles, turn to Zechariah 9.9. And, and again, the, the Jewish people would have understood prophecy They would have known what was said. In Zechariah 9.9, we read a prophecy about the coming king, about the coming Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is not an accident. Jesus has orchestrated this to fulfill prophecy and so people would know that he is proclaiming his king. The prophecy is that he'd come on a donkey, actually on a colt, the full of a donkey. That's exactly how he's coming. It was prophesied elsewhere he'd come from the Mount of Olives. He's coming from the Mount of Olives. He is, there is no question here, he is proclaiming that he is king. Not the military king they were looking for, but a king that is going to change hearts and give himself for the salvation of his people. And so the instruction is, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And so we read, They begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Luke's just pulling from Zechariah and saying, This is a fulfilling prophecy, guys. You can't miss it. Our title of this series is Our Certain Salvation. And Luke's making a case here that he was certainly the king that you were looking for. Certainly the king that is worth serving. And so he's on this donkey. And and what's interesting, I I love the two things that are mentioned in the Zechariah passage. The donkey represents really two aspects of his kingship or two aspects of of the entry. 
The first is, because of this prophecy, he's proclaimed as king. So it does proclaim him as king. And, and be, because the king was, was going to come in on a donkey. We know Solomon, when he was coronated, David brought him in on the foal of a donkey. He brought, so this, there's a history here. It ties him to the Davidic line. And so one side, it shows that he's a king in the line of David. But on the other, in Zechariah, it also shows to the type of kingship that he's a humble king. He comes humble and mounted on a donkey. One author wrote, This revealed his position as king and his character as servant. What a great description of our Lord. He's king and humble and serving. And so verse 38 goes on and and the people continue saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so we see the praise continuing and people rejoicing that he is king. They are proclaiming he's king. In Psalm 118, 25 and 26, and this is what they're quoting from as they're talking about this, says, save us, we pray, O Lord. In, in Hebrew, save us, we pray, Hosanna. And, and so they're saying, Jesus is coming to save us. They're quoting this, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. And then verse 26 out of the Psalm passage, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. What did they say to Jesus? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this had become for them pretty much a standard greeting on the way to the Passover. The difference is the standard greeting didn't include the words the king. And so they are, they're coming along and they take this prophecy of the Messiah and they realize he's king and say, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They didn't miss it. They knew who he was. They rejoiced in following the king. Now, some may have still been thinking he's going to overthrow Rome and and he's going to rule as a military king. But I think some were probably starting to get something different now too because Jesus has been teaching this and teaching this. And they come down and they're they're coming down the Mount of Olives and about to enter Jerusalem. Now, now, this can be difficult for us to understand because we don't have an equivalent in American society of the pomp that is happening here, of the, the royalty that's happening here. The closest thing for us to understanding this, maybe it's when, when you guys watched the, the royal wedding. I actually didn't watch it, sorry. Um, anyone get really into that, the recent one? And I heard of people like DVRing it and they're like, oh, did you see? No, no, I didn't. But, but when you think of British royalty in that whole event, there was a lot of work put into appearances, right? And how it looked and the regalness of it. And, and everything had to be just right. And there's all this thing about the, what they wore and, and who knows what. All this energy went into the regalness of the event. This entry would, would have been something like that. It would have been people proclaiming him as king. The donkey was a very regal way for a king to come in. We don't think of that because like a donkey, really? Um, it was a regal way to come in. The, the co- coats on the ground... This was a royal procession. A little bit different than they were used to, but it was a royal procession. And it was perfect. It's perfect. So the first response is those that follow Christ rejoice. Now, I want to break this group up a little bit because undoubtedly in this group were some that didn't stay with Christ. You had some true disciples that followed Christ and stayed close to Him. 
You had others that over the next, the course of the next week, and, and with what happened to Jesus, either walked away or turned on Jesus. You had Judas in this group. You had the Pharisees that were still in this group. And so you have some that are there to follow Jesus and rejoice, and you have some that are there just experimenting with Jesus. We're just intrigued. He, he, he brought Lazarus back from the dead. Let's see what this guy's about. And they're following. They're caught up in it. And some of those people may have been the same people that would say crucify him later in Jerusalem because they were all there for the Passover. They were all in town. But some were true followers. And so you have this interesting grouping of people just like we do today. Just like we do. We have people that are all in, that are following God. And, and, and there's times that we have people that are just experimenting with Jesus. Well, I'm going to try church and maybe it'll fill my spiritual need because I'm a very spiritual person. That's what people say nowadays, right? And they're experimenting with Jesus. And, and if you're experimenting and trying to figure out who Jesus is, then I encourage you to be here and ask questions and figure it out. But if you're just here to feel spiritual, that, that's not doing it for you. That has no eternal benefit. And so we, we fall into several groups, even us, as we, we sit here and sing worship songs and praise our Lord. The next group, though, the next two verses talk about another group. Verses 39 and 40. These are the opposition, those that oppose. They directly oppose Jesus and who he is. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make them stop. What was happening was not lost on the Pharisees. They knew exactly what the imagery was. They knew exactly that this was kingship imagery. This was Messiah imagery. They knew that the people were quoting Psalm 118. They knew that they were calling him king. But they were not going to do that. Not going to get on board. Not going to, I don't want to. And so this is the group that is in direct opposition to who Jesus is, to what he came to do. And so they say, teachers, rebuke your disciples. Stop them. And and Jesus, in in a, a wonderful answer, he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And, and this is a little heartbreaking to me because instead of accepting the Messiah, this is the Pharisees' chance to say, oh, wow, prophecy is being fulfilled here. This is the Messiah. And instead, they dig in their heels and they harden their hearts and they oppose Jesus even more. Jesus declares he's the Messiah and they say, we don't care. We're not on board. And so that group... The third group in your your list is those that oppose, those that directly oppose Jesus and who he is. Just for fun, the fourth line is the rocks. We've got to talk about the rocks. It talks about the rocks. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Creation can't help but rejoice at King Jesus. He's saying, he's trying to use an imagery that's, I think, sort of funny and sort of cool, that if we don't praise God, even creation will declare the glory of God. Creation will praise God. This doesn't let us off the hook. It's not that we now need to wait for the rocks to sing before we sing. This is saying we should be doing it, but even if they don't, creation knows what's going on here. It's inevitable. The Messiah is coming. I think of Romans 8. I don't know if you've studied Romans 8, but in in 20 to 22, it talks about creation is groaning 
Creation under the curse. Creation, and, and Paul talks about creation looking forward to Jesus making things right. And the second coming when the new heaven and the new earth will, will come. In Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You know, sometimes you hear me talk about the big picture of Scripture. And the big picture, the story of Genesis to Revelation is God redeeming creation back to himself. We have walked away. We have rebelled against God. And it's the story of God's plan to redeem us back to himself. And not just us, but to create a new heaven and new earth and redeem all of creation back to himself. And so the rocks. I'm not saying we have to be rocks. It's just couldn't ignore that verse. The approach to Jerusalem reveals differing responses. Differing ways that, that people will respond. Now, up till now, we've heard Jesus say, don't say anything. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. This is the first time that he's saying, I'm the king. I'm the king. And we, we, we expect the story to stop there. And in the other Gospels, the story does stop there. But 41 to 44, the next four verses give us insight into the heart of Jesus and what kind of king he is. So point number three is the tears. The tears. The king weeps and aches for all to come to him. And he takes no joy in the judgment of those that don't. The king weeps and aches for all to come to him, and he takes no joy in the judgment of those that don't. Verse 41, it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And I picture it coming over that hillside of the picture that I I had in that first view, because you're coming from the backside where you don't see Jerusalem, and that's where you come over, and you see it all in front of you. And Jesus just breaks down. He's riding the donkey. Everyone's celebrating. There's joy. There's cheering. And he's weeping. And the the word there is not just a little tear coming down, but weeping, lamenting, wailing, sometimes it's translated. And we see Jesus' heart because he looks at the people that he loves, the people he came to be Messiah for. And they missed it. And they rejected him. And in verse 42, he, he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. You can't see them and you won't see them now. And, and he laments here that they aren't going to make him king. They aren't going to recognize who he is. They're not going to recognize what he came to do in their hearts and the peace that he could give. The peace, as we saw in the, the declaration before, peace with God in heaven. It's interesting, in in the beginning of 42, would that you, even you, it's something that's just really hard to translate into English. The the Greek wording there actually cuts off. And and he uses a form of the word you that is really intense, which is why they translated even you. And and then the sentence just cuts off in a a weird way. And what, what Luke is showing is that Jesus sort of at that point cut off. He was overcome by emotion. Have you ever had that where you're starting to say something and, and, and you're like, oh, and you just break down? Jesus was human. He was God and he was human. And his emotions just broke him down at that point. Because his heart was for Jerusalem to love him and to follow him, to recognize that he is king. 
His heart for us is for every one of us to follow Him. We know later in the New Testament, Paul writes that God wills that all would be saved. He desires that all would be saved. He doesn't want anyone to to reject Him. He doesn't want anyone to experience the consequences of that rejection. And so we see a heart that loves people. Heart of compassion. Verse 43 goes on and he's talking about this lost opportunity for Jerusalem. That that they could have had peace with God. And now he gets to what the consequences for that. The results of their own choice. The results of their own action. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And this is, this is a prophetic warning. It's a prophetic um, word of what will happen, the judgment that will come. And we know from Josephus and some of the other historians, the secular historians of the time, that in AD 70, this is exactly what happened. As Titus brought in the the Roman army and they surrounded the city and they set up barricades and they set up embankments and they besieged Jerusalem for three years. And they destroyed the city and it was Titus's goal to take every stone off another. And as you walk through some of the streets and some of the things they've uncovered, it's just piles of rubble. Now some of it's been rebuilt since then, but you see these giant multi-ton stones just thrown off the top of the Temple Mount and there's rubble everywhere. That was the fulfillment of this prophecy. In fact, Josephus records what the victorious Roman general Titus said. He threw his arms heavenward, uttered a groan, and called God to witness that this was not his doing. Yeah, he shook his fist at God. Said, your city, I've destroyed it. What he didn't realize is Jesus predicted this 40 years earlier. And God knew that this was going to happen, and he allowed it to happen as judgment on Jerusalem. This is sobering, guys. This is, this is not a light passage and an easy passage. We have the, the triumphal entry and then we have the lament and they're together. But we see that God so wants people to come to him and, and he, he weeps that they won't, but the judgment will still come if they won't. And that brings Jesus pain. It's interesting, at the end of 44, Jesus gives the reason. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. And what that means, your visitation, is you didn't know the time that the Messiah was coming. You missed it. All the signs were there. The Messiah came and visited, and you just went on with life. Now, the Pharisees, they're rejecting, but we have people here that just miss it. They're oblivious to the king. And they don't follow him because of that. And so the the last class of people that are responding are those that just ignore Jesus. They go on with life. So much of life today, I see this, where people are like, ah, I can live without Jesus. I don't need him. Now, in a post-Christian culture, as you talk to people about God, you might even get the response, who's Jesus? I don't know who that is. And you may have to start from the beginning and creation and, and the fall and then how Jesus, how, God, how Jesus came to bring salvation. 
But these people just, just missed it. And that is so sad. So sad. You know, there may be some of you today that you've heard me talking, you've heard other pastors talking here, that we've talked about the gospel. And we've talked about that we're all sinners and we deserve death. We deserve what happened to Jerusalem. But Jesus in his love came and he died on the cross, taking that death for us in our place. That if we follow him, if we rejoice with him and give our lives to him, we can have eternal salvation. You've heard this. My question to you is, don't miss it. Are you missing it? Do we just go through life like, okay, that's nice. Pastor Ron said that and it looks like it's in the Bible. That's pretty cool. But I have to work tomorrow. And hey, there's football this afternoon and actually there's football right now. Thank you for being here. We can turn off the internet so all the people with apps follow it. No, sorry. (laughs) Don't miss what Jesus came to do. Don't miss the power of the lament that Jesus loves you and wants you to walk with Him and He weeps when we don't. And so that last category, those that ignore Christ, they live life oblivious to King Jesus. They didn't realize He came. You see in that chart, categories of response. The first is rejoice. Those that rejoice with Jesus and come to Him. The second is experiment. Those that are trying Christianity out a little bit are going through some of the motions. But hey, you know, when times get tough, I don't know if I'm there. And, and we see that in, in the coming chapters of Luke. We see that in Passion Week as Jesus is arrested and, and we see betrayal and we see people scattering, it describes. Very few are left standing with Christ at the cross. Because so many times when God doesn't perform as we expect, we write him off. Right? They expected a certain type of God. They expected a certain type of Messiah. And when things didn't go as they planned, now keep in mind point one, they went exactly as God planned. But when things didn't go as they planned, they walked away. And in talking with people that walk away from the church, I hear that all the time. Well, God let me down. Oh, village, God hasn't let you down. He has never let you down. In fact, His plan is better than your plans. It just may not be what you want. Don't lose heart in the king because the king didn't do what you thought he should. Praise the king and get excited about what to expect because he's working out a plan much better than ours and much greater than ours. The third class of people we mentioned are those that are opposed to Christ. And, and, and some of you know people and some of you maybe are there where you're just agnostic and, and you're angry at God for, for what has happened and you're opposed to Him. Let's talk. Let's work through that. Let's see who God really is because so many times that's built on false expectations and false images of God. And then we see people that, that ignore, that are oblivious to God and what He's come to do. They didn't know the time of His visitation. So how will you respond to the king? How will you respond to the king of kings and lord of lords that came and gave his life for you? And and, and I want to ask that question a different way because I know this group and, and I know we're a church family and I know most would say, well, we're in the rejoicing group. 
We love Him. We follow Him. Hey, we sang this morning pretty loud. So maybe the question we need to think through is, which response does my life show during the week? If, if Jesus makes no difference in my life during the week, then he's not king, and I'm in the ignore group. If I'm struggling with bitterness and anger about where I'm at, then I'm either in the opposition group or the experimenting group that is going to walk away. What, do, what does our life say this week? Does my life say, I'm rejoicing the king, I'm all in? Yeah, dad, I'll go clean my room. That is such a great idea. Or is my response something different? See, if we say that we are following the king, if we say that we're rejoicing and we're all in and we're proclaiming him as king, that means we're giving him lordship of our lives. And we're giving him rule of our lives. And maybe the harder part is I'm giving up rule of my life. So, so I can proclaim God as king, but don't have me give up my say. <laughs> That's just me. See, if we say Jesus is king, we come under him. Some of the things we see here and just in, in what kingship is, if we say he's king, we trust the king, no matter the circumstances, and we give our worry to him. If we, if we say he's the king and follow him as king, we enjoy the king. We rejoice and revel in our relationship with him. The king wants a relationship with me? That is awesome. And we enjoy it. If we follow the king, we'll respect the king. And we'll honor him and worship him and give him the reverence he is due. And we sang songs about his character this morning and reverencing him and praising him. If we follow him as king, we'll obey him and we'll obey him willingly in every part of life and every day of the week. If we follow him as king, we will serve the king and we will order our life around his mission and what he wants to do. If we're not doing those things, then we don't really believe Jesus is king. That's the message of the triumphal entry and the responses of the people. How am I going to respond? Is he really king? Or am I just doing lip service to that? We end really somber. Because while we end somber, that warning is to direct us to to love God, to proclaim him as king, to say, Hosanna, he's here to save us, to give our life to the king. And I challenge you this week, as you go through your week, every morning when you wake up, say, how is my life going to exhibit that I follow the king? And if you can't come up with something, come up with something. I know, that's sort of an oxymoron, right? <laughs> come up with something, because if we're following the king, it will make a difference. Lord God, thank you for your salvation. Lord, we say, Lord, save us, and we say that expectantly and joyfully for what you've done in our lives, knowing that you are coming again, Lord, and knowing that we will see you in eternity. Lord, help us to be looking in our lives this week and say, is there any area of my life that you're not king? Lord, and reveal to us, we ask you as Village Bible Church, reveal to us areas where we haven't made you king, where we're holding back, where we are responding like one of the other groups. Lord, and help us to turn that over to you. We make you king. We proclaim you are king. We want to live that you are king. In your name, amen.